0: Well, I guess I have some explaining to do. Where have I been? Very, very good question. Nowhere. I've been here. I just haven't been podcasting as of late, as you probably have noticed. There's a couple of reasons for that, none of which are really exciting. I lost a lot of drive and energy to really sit in front of a microphone for an hour or so and record stuff. The task was daunting. I was going through some stuff. And I guess depression is a bit of a bitch in that sense. But hopefully I can get back to a more reasonable schedule. I don't know if I'll do every week again, but hopefully we can get out a couple of months. I do apologize greatly, and I hope you all had a happy new year and a merry Christmas or a happy holiday, whatever you celebrate, if you celebrate anything. If you don't, then, well, I hope you had a great end of the calendar year. So what are we going to talk about in my first episode back? Well, true crime, of course. We're going to talk about a woman called Cynthia Elizabeth Hack, or more likely known as Cindy James. She was a Canadian nurse who died in the 80s, under some mysterious circumstances. This is a case riddled with all sorts of mysteries and drama, so you'll just have to kick back and listen to me talk about this for the next 20 or so minutes. So, this is the case of Cindy James. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. Ominous. Now, Cynthia was born, or Cindy, rather, whatever you want to go by, was born in Oliver, British Columbia, Canada, on June 12, 1944, to Matilda, or Tilly, a homemaker, and Otto Hack, an English teacher and former colonel in the Royal Canadian Air Force. Both of her parents were of Russian descent. She was one of six kids, with three older brothers and two younger sisters. Cindy spent part of her teenage years in Ottawa due to her father's involvement in the Air Force and she also attended high school there. She recorded private diaries all throughout her childhood that had been marked by her father's strictness. Now, some of these entries did include corporal punishment, which is not a great thing. That's when you physically harm your child as a form of discipline, basically. Now, in adulthood, Cindy pursued a career in nursing in Vancouver, and she enrolled in nursing school in 1962. During this period, her father had relisted with the Air Force and relocated the family to France, where she visited them during the holidays. During this time, in letters to her family, Cindy occasionally referred to an unnamed intern she'd met during her studies. She claimed that the two of them at one point had been engaged and that after finding he had terminal cancer, the man committed suicide while a couple were on a skiing trip. So her life is off to a great start so far, obviously. Now despite her potential engagement to this mystery man, None of her parents or siblings ever met him, and she never even gave him a name, which is a little suspicious, if nothing else. In the summer of 1965, Cindy met Rory Makepeace, a South African psychiatrist, 18 years older than her. The two married on December 9th, 1966, and the same year she graduated from nursing school with a BSN. Cindy's parents were skeptical of the marriage due to the couple's age difference, and her father felt that Makepeace had taken advantage of Cindy's naivete, and gullibility. Her family testified that the couple's marriage was troubled and that the two were at times emotionally distant. Though Cindy later made accusations of spousal abuse, Makepeace asserted that he only slapped her twice over the course of the marriage. Only twice, just twice, only. Only, Jesus Christ, the fucking 60s were a weird time. Though licensed as a psychiatrist in his home country, South Africa, Makepeace failed to obtain his medical license in Canada and instead accepted a job as an assistant professor in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. Cindy worked as a pediatric nurse in Vancouver at the Vancouver General Hospital, where her husband was also an employee. In 1973, Makepeace took a job as a Director of Health Services at BC Hydro. In April of 1975, Cindy was hired as a team coordinator at Vancouver's bellum house a facility caring for children with behavioral disorders she worked at belham for approximately 12 years and was noted by her colleagues for her competence and professionalism now we're going to get into some allegations and some of these are a little bit off-putting so if you have any issues with abuse spousal abuse physical abuse sexual abuse or anything of those natures you've been warned Spanning a near seven-year period, between 1982 and 1989, Cindy reported approximately 90 incidents of criminal activity to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or the RCMP, here in Canada as we know them. Her claims included acts of stalking, vandalism, arson, harassment, intimidation, home invasion, and physical assaults perpetrated by an unknown person or persons. The incidents began in September of 1982, four months after Cindy separated from Makepeace, In late September, she told friends and family members that she suspected that a prowler had been lurking around her home. A series of obscene phone calls soon followed, the first of which was received on October 7th of 82. Cindy's mother relayed that, though she was reluctant to discuss her experiences, she indicated that the phone calls consisted of an individual speaking in different voices, and that on some occasions there were mere silence on the other end. Cindy described some of the calls as sexual and violent in nature. On October 11th, Cindy received a phone call consisting of a loud breathing noise, and the following day received another call in a menacing whisper which said, I'll get you one night, Cindy. She reported the obscene phone calls to the RCMP who visited her home and suggested that she keep a list of each call and its contents. As well, she should get an unlisted number and change all of her private stuff, because naturally, why wouldn't you? Shortly after the officer left, Cindy received a call which an apparent male voice said, You fucking bitch. I'll get you. The next day on the afternoon of October 13th, the caller threatened her, saying, quote, So you think calling the police will keep you safe? You wait. I've got my zipper open. I'm talking to my throbbing. Before she abruptly ended the call, quite naturally. Two days later, Cindy reported to the RCMP that she had heard someone lurking outside of her home and awoke in the morning to find her porch lights smashed. On October 15th, she reported to the police that someone had thrown a rock through one of her windows and entered her house, though nothing else had been disturbed. For four days, on October 19th, she reported that someone had entered her home and slashed a pillow on her bed. Patrick McBride, a constable with the Vancouver RCMP, suspected that the culprit was her estranged husband, Makepeace, who denied any involvement, of course. Cindy herself made conflicting statements regarding Makepeace, telling authorities that She did not think he was capable of tormenting her, but also divulged to friends and co-workers that he was violently abusive during her marriage. Remember, he hit her twice. Just twice, as he bragged. Just twice. On October 20th, two tenants who rented the basement of Cindy's home reported to the police that they heard strange noises upstairs on the main floor after she had left for work. A next-door neighbor informed McBride that she had witnessed a man standing outside the house on at least three different occasions. And at least one time he entered the gate Of the front yard. The neighbor insisted that the man did not resemble Makepeace. Cindy eventually began a relationship with McBride, which lasted approximately one year. McBride had also recently separated from his wife, and he eventually moved into Cindy's house on Halloween of 1982. She told friends that McBride had offered to stay for approximately two weeks, helping her survey and maybe even catch the perpetrator if he arrived at her home. Several days after McBride moved in, he found Makepeace sitting in his parked car in the alley behind the house. When questioned, Makepeace claimed that he was trying to catch Cindy's alleged intruder, quote-unquote, in the act, and subsequently left after McBride informed him he had moved in. In mid-November, McBride stated that he himself received a mysterious phone call at the home while Cindy was present, and that the caller never spoke a single word. McBride initially suspected the call may have been from an airport terminal, as you could hear a woman's voice in the background over a PA system, though it was eventually traced to an exchange in the Vancouver suburb of Richmond. Later in November, Cindy found a note pinned to her car windshield, which featured a picture of a corpse lying under a medical sheet. On November 28th, McBride observed that the phone lines outside the house had been cut in five different places. Cindy, who had remained cordial and friendly with Makepeace despite their breakup, at times invited him into her home with McBride present, as both men had a common and shared fascination with finding her alleged harasser, and would often discuss the case together. McBride eventually moved out of Cindy's home on December 1st, 1985, though the two continued to casually date, frequently having dinners together in the Vancouver and Bellingham, Washington area of the United States. The week of Christmas 1982, Cindy found a note outside her house reading Merry Christmas with a photo of a woman with her throat slashed, stained with red ink. And if that's not creepy enough, it just gets a little bit worse and worse and worse and worse. Because of course it does. Because it's a fucking true crime case. On the night of January 27th, 1983, Agnes Woodcock, a friend and co-worker from Blenheim House, visited Cindy's house and found her lying unconscious in her backyard with a nylon stocking wrapped around her neck. Upon regaining consciousness, Cindy told Woodcock that she had been attacked from behind by an assailant while walking to her exterior garage, and that the individual brought her into the garage where another male waited and the two strangled her. She alleged that the man inserted a knife into her vagina and threatened to kill her younger sister, Melanie, if she reported the attack to authorities. Doctors who examined Cindy after the alleged attack found no concrete evidence of sexual assault, though Detective David Bower-Smith remained ambivalent about her claim. At police request, Cindy was asked to see a psychiatrist, but declined, as she feared doing so would stigmatize her. Instead, she agreed to visit a general practitioner with experience in counseling. Cindy relocated from her residence to a house in West Vancouver on February 1st, 1983. Less than a week later, she received a threatening letter reading, Run, Rabbit, Run. I'll show you how fucking good I am. Soon, bang, bang, you're dead. After a rash of further obscene phone calls, Cindy relocated to another house in April of 1983. Makepeace, who had made continued attempts to reconcile with his wife, showered her with several lavish gifts in the summer of 83 and paid her airfare to Indonesia so she could visit her brother Roger, who was stationed there. Several weeks after returning from the trip, Cindy found another note on August 22nd which read, welcome back, death, blood, hate, etc. Cindy painted her car a different color in an attempt to conceal her identity and hired a PI, Ozzy Cabane, which is the greatest... PI name of all time. She continued to pay for Caban's services over the following six years. Caban noted that Cindy went to extensive lengths to protect herself, such as wearing a portable panic button and keeping oil and pepper spray with her at all times. Between October and November of 1983, Cindy discovered the remains of three strangled cats in her garden, each bound with a rope. In her private diary, she accused Makepeace of destroying the garden in her backyard. She continued to receive numerous phone calls at home and at work, some of which were answered by her co-workers at Blenheim House, who told authorities the caller did not speak. On January 30th, 84, Caban overheard strange noises on a two-way radio he had given Cindy, prompting him to visit her home. Upon his arrival, he found her laying unconscious on her living room floor with a paring knife stabbed through her hand and a note pinned through the knife. The note, which was crafted with letters cut and pasted from a magazine, Red, now you must die cunt cindy was taken to a local hospital and an interview with caban stated the last thing she remembered before being found was witnessing a man coming through the gate to her property before he assaulted her and bludgeoned her over the head with a blunt object she stated that once incapacitated she recalled her attacker inserting a hypodermic needle into her arm doctors located a needle mark in her right arm but found no traces of any drugs in her system Cindy took a polygraph test after the incident, which purportedly showed no deception. However, the officer who conducted the test later stated that the results, by his estimation, proved inconclusive at best. Constable Keo Ikoma, who reported to Cindy's residence the night of the alleged attack, stated that he observed blood smeared in circular patterns on the kitchen floor, as though someone had attempted to clean evidence. In February of 84, detectives began increasingly questioning Makepeace as Sydney had confided that she felt he was indeed the one tormenting her. In interviews, Makepeace theorized that Cindy's attackers were part of the mafia and connected to her employment at the Belheim house. In March of 84, Cindy's father Otto met with Makepeace at a donut shop in Vancouver wearing a police wiretap and told Makepeace to cease contact with his daughter. After the meeting, Makepeace wrote And sent a six page letter to Otto outlining his theory that he believed the mafia was after Cindy and urged Otto to press the police to investigate that angle. Over the summer of 84, which was a good movie, Summer of 84, if I remember correctly, it's a a good little romp. Kind of very off topic though. Cindy's reported incidents of harassment reached a crescendo in intensity. On June 18th, she phoned Caban in a panic and he rushed to her home to find her cowering in the garden claiming someone had infiltrated her house. Caban discovered her dog, Heidi, cowering in the basement along with a note reading Happy Birthday, alongside sexually explicit photos. Heidi had sadly been physically abused, and Command noted that the rope bound around her appeared to be the same discovered on the dead cats Cindy had found the previous autumn. On a windowsill in the basement, a cigarette butt was discovered, which did not match the brand Cindy was known to smoke. Based on the physical abuse Heidi had endured, Caban concluded that Cindy could not have been the perpetrator, stating, quote, she'd never have done that if she was the Cindy I knew, End quote. Over the following several weeks, further calls were received, one of which Caban answered at Cindy's home while she was at work, and a dead cat was found lying in the stairwell of her house. On July 1st, Cindy told Caban two men had arrived at her home, posing as police officers, but fled when she radioed Caban. Cindy subsequently reported a series of further obscene phone calls, one of which consisted of the caller saying, quote, You're dead, bitch. It's gonna feel good. A co-worker of Cindy's at Blenheim had also received a call which said, Get rid of the big pig. Whatever that means. Now, on July 9th, 1984, Cindy's mother, Tilly, spent the night at her home. In the middle of the night, Tilly woke to Heidi barking and found Cindy checking windows and doors on the main floor. Moments later, they both heard the doorbell ring and discovered a window near the front porch cracked in several areas. Two weeks later, on July 23rd, Cindy claimed she was attacked by an assailant in nearby Dunbar Park while walking her dog at approximately 8.30 p.m. By her recollection, she was assailed by a bearded man driving a green van with a female passenger. Several hours later, around midnight, she was found in a dazed state attempting to enter the home of a neighbor who had a dark gray nylon stocking around her neck. Her dog, Heidi, was found by Caban wandering in the area of the park. She was taken to the nearby University of British Columbia Health and Science Center, where doctors observed two puncture marks in her right arm. While Cindy was being treated, a hospital receptionist told authorities a man with an accent had called the front desk, inquiring about the hospital's security policies. When police played the audio of Makepeace's voice, the receptionist felt there was a strong possibility that it was the same person. In October of 84, while under the care of a hypnotherapist, Cindy recounted a repressed memory of witnessing a double murder, but did not divulge any further details. Now that does bring us to the 1985-1986 years where there's a lot more going on. So how about we turn our return, turn our return, there we go, that's a good turn of phrase, (laughs) haha, another turn, into a two-parter. I like the sounds of that. Hopefully I can get this up next week, and we get two in a row, and then maybe I'll take a little break again, I don't know. I don't know. We're just going to go with the flow. But, as always, thank you so much for listening. If you did like what you heard, absolutely feel free to leave a 5-star rating on Spotify or a 5-star rating on iTunes Apple Podcast. And any 5-star ratings at our left will be shouted out on the show, provided you give me your name and information and all that kind of fun stuff, which you can do on social media, which is still there. It's not really active, but it's still there. On Facebook, at Horror Shots, On Instagram, at Omnis Origins Pod or on Twitter at horror shots prod as in production. My name is Casey. This has been the Omnis Origins podcast until next time.